On this episode of The Peak's Life, we meet a very knowledgeable and determined lady who not only has conquered her own health condition, she's helped countless others with their health and wellness. Cynthia Thurlow is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting, and she's a highly sought after speaker, CEO, and founder of Everyday Wellness Project. Cynthia's been a nurse practitioner for 20, well, more than 20 years. She's a two times TEDx speaker, and she's been featured on shows like ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, and also in Medium and Entrepreneur. We're really honored to have Cynthia with us, and again, another fascinating experience for us to talk about. So stay through to the end because we've got some great tips for you. This is the Peaks Audio Experience. So welcome back everyone to The Peaks Life um, with myself, Lynn Fernie and Mike Warren. And today we're joined by special guest, Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia, welcome to The Peaks Life. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you both. And we always really enjoy having um, people who are either in the same area as us or perhaps in you know, the medical profession. And I think this, this particular episode, we've got lots of super tips, super information, especially at a, a time when the world is not normal around us. So mm. stay tuned all the way through this because we've got some real nuggets coming up at the end. So I guess by way of introduction, um, Cynthia, can you just give us a bit of a rundown on your journey? Because you've had quite an amazing health journey yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So for anyone who doesn't know, tell us how you ended up where you are today. Well, I mean, I'm trained as a Western medicine nurse practitioner and worked in ER medicine and cardiology for over 20 years. And when I had children, it really grounded me in a way that I had not anticipated. And I have my older son who uh, developed life-threatening food allergies. And, you know, in the typical science-minded individual that I am, I wanted to find out why this had happened. And, you know, down the rabbit hole of food allergies and food allergy awareness and being told, I'm essentially, we were told to uh, just carry EpiPens and pray, which was not a reassuring statement to have been made to me. Um, I stumbled upon a book called The Unhealthy Truth. And if you're not familiar with it, it's written by an amazing woman, Robin O'Brien, who used to be an executive in the lobbying organization. And so that book uh, made me very angry, but also made me very determined that I was going to shift the focus of you know, my, my perspectives. I had always been a healthy person and eaten very healthfully, but started looking at food and the processed food industry very differently. And so from there, I was still working in cardiology, and every time I took my son, he had terrible eczema. Every time I took him to his pediatrician, they would say, oh, just put this you know, high-potency topical steroid on his skin, and all will be well. And I kept saying, is it something he's eating that's driving this? And they would say, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And so what I came to find out you know, through the food allergy exploration and then looking at the processed food industry and then deep diving into some other issues was that I was really passionate about the interrelationship between nutrition and how it impacts our, our health in positive and negative ways. And so initially I started a PhD program thinking that would satisfy this, this need. Then it, you know, that I started that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Then I started a wellness coaching program, which I enjoyed, but that wasn't it. And to make a long story short, what I fell into was a functional nutrition program uh, in which there were five other Western medicine trained peers who were also really passionate about food. And so through that process, I came to find that although I love being a nurse practitioner, I felt strongly that I was better suited for focusing on a different area of health and wellness. And so after writing many, many years of prescriptions, I got tired of writing prescriptions and so left clinical medicine four years ago to start a business. And that business turned into, I created a tribe of predominantly women who came to me who were perimenopausal age, you know, late thirties, early forties and beyond that were really suffering. They were, you know, they couldn't sleep, they gained weight, they were really frustrated. And so I created programs and one-on-ones and in my typical fashion, being an introvert, I like to set scary goals for myself. And so a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to do a TED Talk, and that turned into two. 
but before I could do my second TED Talk, I came back from a business trip with my husband and ended up uh, on a very perilous 13-day hospitalization, uh, was very sick and almost died. And for anyone that knows me, you know that I'm super fit, super healthy, and it was probably my physical conditioning that allowed me to survive. And, and, and I, I don't use this, these terms lightly when I say that there is no greater experience to go through when you realize that your, your medical brain is turned on and you recognize that they're struggling to find answers for why you're so ill. And I had every complication you can think of and ultimately uh, had a very septic appendix that you know, not having a healthy amount of respect for sepsis as a clinician, as I did when I was the one that was so sick, when I got out of the hospital, I was committed to doing this second talk. And, and with my surgeon's blessing and several weeks of convalescing at home, I went on to do that talk, which went viral. And the biggest silver lining in all of this is that it's now given me greater, a greater platform to be able to share strategies and to be able to share my message in a, in a much more profound way. So, you know, you go from, you know, nearly dying to doing a talk to then having opportunities to connect with amazing people. So I, I sit in tremendous gratitude. And, and the moral of the story is this, our mindset is the most powerful, powerful possession that we have, because I willed myself to be able to be healthy enough to walk out of that, well, I didn't walk out of the hospital, wheeled out of the hospital, uh, 13 days after I started, and and I told my, you know, he was 10 at the time, my now 12 year old, he came with me to do that talk, and I kept saying to him, I said, I wanted to show you and your brother that when you set your mind to doing something, you are capable mm -hmm. of amazing things. So, my moral of my story is this: that irrespective of what you're going through, whatever period it is in your life, if you can wrap your head around making small, simple changes, they can have a really powerful impact on your life, and so. I always believe in, in providing a message that is of hope and opportunity and positivity, irrespective of where we are in time and place. Um, I know we were talking before we jumped on, but that's a very circular explanation for why, how I, how, why I got to this point in time. So, so uh, and you know, there's so much that, uh, that I want to ask you about, Cynthia, and, and, and we will, and uh, we're probably going to go on for a few hours. <laughs> so... I, but I think, you know, I, I've got to focus on that point around mindset first, because mm -hmm. we are so aligned on this mm -hmm. point that the mind is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. uh, and the mind leads the body. So mm -hmm. where the mind goes, the body will follow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wellness is, people say 80% mindset. I think, you know, our belief is it's, it's even more than that because... absolutely. When you set your mind to it, as you said, it, it happens, right? So if you decide in your mind that things are going to be bad, the outcome's bad, being mm -hmm. stuck inside as many of us are right now while we're mm. doing this podcast um, is a bad thing. It's, it's going to have a negative impact on your mental mm -hmm. health. Then it will. But if you okay. set your mind to being positive, um, you will survive. You will get through it. There'll be some mm -hmm. great outcomes then you can do amazing, amazing things. So you know, I think the mind is, is far, far more powerful um, than most people give it credit for. Mm. But I wanted, to, um, I wanted to go back in time to, to some of the things that, that you were talking about there, Cynthia. And the first one is just a very simple question. For those people who don't know what functional medicine is mm -hmm. you just give us a bit of a rundown on what it means most people are familiar with western medicine going to the gp getting a magic mm -hmm. pill uh, but but what is functional medicine so functional medicine's basis is that you're looking for a root cause of why you're sick or why you're having symptoms so for example sometimes people have bloating now if you go to a traditional western medicine uh, provider, they're going to give you something to deal with the bloat. And that could be cymethicone, which dissolves gas. Whereas if you're seeing someone that's functionally trained, they're going to think broadly, like what is going on with the gut health? Um, are you in parasympathetic or rest and repose side of your body while you're consuming foods? What is your stress level like? I mean, they're going to be looking at multiple factors that impact your ability to digest food and not have bloating. 
And I always remind people, bloating is not normal. I think so many of us just assume whatever symptoms we're having, constipation, diarrhea, et cetera, whatever we experience is what we have to accept. And so a really simple explanation is Western medicine is looking at symptom management, traditional um, functional medicine is really looking at root cause and, and looking at bioindividuality, which is really uh, a catch-all phrase for saying each of us are individuals and there's no one size fits all philosophy. And that's something that for me, having trained at a big research institution, I always remind people that you know we, we evolve, shift and change as clinicians. And so I think for many of us, we feel like you know patients don't just fit in one bucket. And so for that reason, uh, you know, it's an explanation that I believe functional medicine, uh, and I, I look to Dr. Jeffrey Bland for this because he kind of coined this whole concept, but it's looking at all of us as individuals and all the factors that make us unique, genetics, stress level, um, you know, biophysical factors, et cetera, that can contribute to, you know, whether we deal with health or disease or, uh, you know, any number of uh, other factors that impact our, our health and wellness. And I think that great, great answer. I, I love the way that you said it very simply, you know, the, the Western medicine is looking at symptoms and trying to, to fix symptoms, treats us all effectively the same way as <laughs> functional um, medicine. We're looking much deeper. We're stripping all of that back and trying to get down to the bottom of, of what really causes it. Um, and treating everybody as an as an individual, so I guess uh, you know following on from that question, you, you obviously had your own health crisis where you ended up in hospital, um, you know, with appendicitis, with a septic appendix, and you know, very very ill. Were you able to get to the root cause of you know what happened there? We think, and when I say we think, um, my functional medicine providers and I believe when I was in Toronto during my first TED Talk in December, so March is the second TED Talk, December is the first, I had gone to have dinner and ate an organic salad and there was an outbreak of E. coli. And so I woke up the day of my TED Talk with terrible diarrhea and I assumed it was nerves. Well, it wasn't nerves. It, it went on for days and days and days, and I was very sick, and they did a lot of testing to figure out what was going on. And, and so there is the belief that that set in motion, potentially uh, set in motion what could have exacerbated what was going on. I mean, at the time, I was also doing coffee enemas. And so there, there are multiple things that might have been impacting my GI tract uh, in a negative way. So I think at this point, we, we believe it was probably a constellation of things all coming together at the same time. And so uh, that's our acting hypothesis. Now, obviously, when I went to the ER that evening, uh, I did not talk about coffee enemas. And I don't think I was too sick to care about the E. coli, but it was only after the fact I put things together. Someone's chiming I know. Someone just came to the door. Um, so <laughs> retrospectively, we think that those probably contributed. And, and it's interesting because I wasn't treated for the E. coli with antibiotics. We used antimicrobials, so uh, supplements that can address the infection. Mm -hmm. uh, and I cleared it. It was gone. Mm -hmm. But I think it might have set things in motion to imbalance the gut microbiome that perhaps made me susceptible to um, you know, this really wicked infection. I mean, I'm very, very grateful that uh, I was not traveling home from Hawaii when all of this mm -hmm. happened. I was actually, mm -hmm. I've been home for about 48 hours uh, when I started getting sick. Uh, but you have to be grateful for those things. So that's our acting hypothesis for why that all happened. <laughs> but I don't think we really know. And, and interestingly enough, I came to find out that uh, appendicitis is the most common reason why people go to the emergency room uh, between the ages of 25 and 45. And interestingly enough, I was a little older than that. I was 47. But still, uh, you know, I, I was right in that age range where it's not all that uncommon. And what I came to find out from talking to so many friends, how many other people who had otherwise been super healthy, got a bad appendix and ended up in the hospital for a week. And I said, you know, we used to call it a vestigial organ. When I was in school, we thought it was a worthless, <laughs> worthless <laughs> organ that did nothing. And yet, you know, that worth, quote unquote worthless organ almost killed me. So I now yeah. have a healthy amount of respect for it. Well, mine's yeah. gone, but 
It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and we share something there, Cynthia, because I had a, a very similar experience um, when I was around 42. Um, I was traveling back from Thailand to Perth in Australia and um, very healthy, worked out, very fit, ate incredibly healthy, very clean food. Um, I'd been on a business trip and then a holiday. And on my way back, I started to get, you know, gripping stomach pains. I'd never had any kind of major illness. Mm -hmm. I'd never been in hospital in my life. Yeah. Um, you don't take any kind of medications. Mm -hmm. And it took um, quite a long time to be diagnosed because I was traveling at the time. And I was in oh, a, sure. you know, an airport hotel, couldn't leave. And um, when I eventually had a terror ride to a Malaysian hospital in the suburbs, which, which oh, was no. not a pleasant experience, <laughs> <laughs> they eventually luckily diagnosed um, appendicitis and said wow. it had to be taken out. So, um, you know, very similar experience. And then mm -hmm. bizarrely enough, still don't know like yourself exactly what caused mm -hmm. it. But afterwards, a lot of the symptoms that I had of severe gluten intolerance completely resolved and disappeared. Interesting. Um, mm. And I put it down a lot to um, a complete change in the gut microbiome. Mm. Maybe there's something that was in there that had been building mm. up over time. Yeah. Um, and probably over a long period of time because my symptoms mm. have been getting worse and worse and worse. And then after that, I was completely restored to having great gut health and I was able mm. to build on it. And I think so many people go through that experience. And I guess mm. I, I wanted to draw that point out because what we see is a lot of people who do want a quick fix. They mm -hmm. want the Western approach. They want the pill that will cure, mm -hmm. cure them. And your journey and my journey illustrates that often it's very difficult to find the root cause. It's different mm -hmm. for all of us. It depends what we've been exposed to in our lives, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Mm -hmm. um, and it can take many years to, to get to the point where, you know, one's health evolution uh, is at a point where you can actually say, look, you know, the journey's maybe not complete, but it's, but it's 80% of the way there. So when you're working with people and they come in mm -hmm. with symptoms, how do you approach that mental side with them to give them hope that this is, it's going to be a long game, but it'll be. Yeah. Well, I think it, it oftentimes depends on where they are. You know, we look at this trans theoretical model of change. So some people are at a point where they're ready to pay me money to work with them, but they're not ready to do the work. And so I kind of have gotten very savvy with figuring out I only want to work with those that are highly motivated because to me, it's, it's frustrating. And I always tell people, I can't want this for you. Much like I tell my children, I don't, I can't want this for you. You have to want this for yourself. And so I want to work with people who are very committed to doing the hard work because it is much harder to change your diet, to change your lifestyle than it is to pop a pill. And I, you know, it, it, I, I hearken back to my days in cardiology and I would sit in, in my office, you know, when I was in clinic talking to my wonderful patients and I would inevitably have someone younger than me. And I would say to them, how can I motivate them to take better care of themselves? If they're 32, 33, 35, they're so young, you know, this is a slippery slope. If you stop taking care of yourself, I mean, you've got a long road to go. And so sometimes people would be receptive. And I said, how can I motivate you? How old is your child at home? You know, how, how old is your, you know, how long have you been married to your spouse? Uh, sometimes that would be a motivating point. And then sometimes people would just say, you know what? I, I'm not going to change my diet. I'm not going to stop smoking. I'm not going to lose weight. Just give me the pill and essentially tell me to shut up. Uh, and so I had to accept that as well. But I think when I'm working with people, it's really assessing where they are on this change theory. Are they ready to do the work? If they are great, if they're just contemplating it. And every time I get on a zoom call with them or, um, you know, a call where I'm speaking with them and I can tell they're just giving me lip service. And sometimes I'll actually tell them, listen, I would rather, if you're not ready to do the work, that's fine, but I'm just going to refund your money because I'm not, I want you to want to take care of yourself, but I can't do that work for you. Like I can give you all the, the tips and the tricks and supplements and meal plans. I can do all that. But if you don't want to take care of you, if you don't love yourself enough, if you don't care enough about what I'm talking about, then I can't want that for you. And so I used to take it personally. Now I recognize it as really nothing to do. I'm just a facilitator. 
Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of what I do is facilitation. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I think that largely, especially in westernized countries, we've been conditioned to believe that we have, you know, things happen to us, that we have no control, and mm-hmm. that we have to accept things as they are. So the whole concept of limiting beliefs is one that makes me absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. And I will turn things around. I will say to my patients, reframe, 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 just like I am right now. I don't say I'm stuck in the house. I always say I'm having a lot of family time. And the way that I work around it is to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But you know, that, that, that positive attitude, that optimism, that reframing is really critical as -hmm. it pertains to any health, you know, or wellness decisions that we're making, because it it all comes down to mindset. Like you mentioned, the whole concept of neuroplasticity, our thoughts become our actions. Mm -hmm. And I remind people, I have a lot of women who are afraid of gaining weight or afraid of going back to where they were. And I just tell them, listen, when you start having that, you know, those ruminating thoughts, just keep telling yourself, it's not going to happen. It isn't happening. And these are the things you're doing to ensure it doesn't happen. You know, those things don't just happen to us. There are decisions we make that impact what happens, you know, in, in terms of whether it's weight or fitness or, you know, food decisions we make. And, and so just recognizing we have more control than, than perhaps not right now because we're social distancing, but we have control over some things and that's what we need to focus on. It's always that constant reframe. I even hear my children as wonderful as they are at 12 and 14, they're still normal human beings. You know, I always say, you know, they look to us for much like my patients do, they look to us for guidance. Hmm. And so I have to remind myself when I'm feeling and it's completely normal to be frustrated. I'm an introvert and it's hard to be in the space where I have no privacy. (laughs) So (laughs) I have to find ways to to get time by myself, like I mentioned before we jumped on, I've been doing, I do three and four mile, four and a half mile walks every day, in addition to my exercise in the morning, because that's the hour I get to myself where I don't have to talk. Just with my mm-hmm. dogs, they don't expect me to talk to them. I just walk, <laughs> they get exercise, I walk, we come home, and then I feel like I've had a very kind of cathartic, it's, I can come back in the house, I can be mom, I can make dinner, I can help <laughs> with homework, and then I can chill and relax. So. <laughs> so, Cindy, you may, be, you may be an introvert, but you are an experienced podcaster and you have your own podcast. Give us a bit of an understanding of who tunes into your podcast, what's the driver behind that, just so for those people tuning in, get a bit of a sense of uh, some of the area you cover on your podcast. Yeah, so the podcast is called Everyday Wellness, and so it was co-hosted with my wonderful friend who's a clinical psychologist, but we have separated her her career is kind of taking off and so I'm now solo hosting but what we what we kind of created the podcast and being is that we feature um, you know everyday people or healthcare providers or clinical psychologists people that can show us how to live our best lives and so we could have people coming on and talking about um, mindset or we could have people coming on and talking about intermittent fasting or um, you know, different types of diets. Like we had uh, Sean Baker come on and talk about the carnivore diet. We've had people come on and talk about perimenopause and menopause and female hormones. And, and it really runs the gamut. And, and we do have, I would say our podcast um, listeners run in age from 35 to 65. They are educated. They are interested. They are open-minded. Uh, they like to get high quality information. I always remind them that uh, I don't bring anyone on that we aren't interested in learning something from. That's the really cool thing is that when you have a podcast, you can bring people on that you want to learn. If there's a topic that they're an expert on, you can learn more about it. And then you can share that knowledge with your listeners. So we tend to keep our podcast under about 45 minutes. Typically, um, we have had several that have been showcasing COVID, uh, just bringing on experts to help uh, educate the group. Uh, but we've really, we're really, really proud of the work that we've done. We're just shy of a hundred episodes uh, wow. and uh, you know, really enjoy, I enjoy the work. In fact, it's one of the highlights of, of the work that I do is to have the opportunity to have a platform. I'm sure much like you all do platform to be able to share really high quality interviews uh, with individuals that can encourage people to live their best lives. And that's, that's very cool. And, you know, I think right now is a great time for people who are tuning in to um, listen to a, a, different, a different voice, a different podcast, um, and get some, some new information. So a couple of questions about, again, just 
um, continuing with, with your health journey and your wellness journey, Cynthia, because there's lots of trends at the moment. Um, there are lots, uh, there's lots of information and misinformation around. So just want to start with, with diet. How's your mm -hmm. diet evolved and where are you at personally? Because, you know, we know a lot about keto. There's lots of debates mm -hmm. about carnivore, um, debates mm -hmm. about should you stay in ketosis for long periods of time. And I know you've got an opinion, so I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Well, I think one of the most common questions I get is what do I eat? So I've been paleo for years. I've been gluten, grains, and dairy-free, very happy in that space. People always are in shock and awe. Um, I, don't miss, I don't miss any of those things. But after getting so sick, uh, my digestive system was so wrecked by not only the ruptured appendix, but a small bowel obstruction and pancreatitis and abscesses and a fistula. I mean, I was a hot mess. And the only thing that my body tolerated for months was meat, just meat. I mean, and my Italian mother was having a fit because she would come to stay with us and she was trying to get green vegetables down my throat. Uh, and so what I've come to find out is my body right now exists in a carnivore-ish environment. There's not a ton of vegetables that my body tolerates. Uh, I came to find out that I'm also, I'm not tolerating oxalates. And so for those that are listening that aren't familiar with oxalates, they are found in things like spinach and kale and nuts. And you can imagine in my paleo world, there's a lot of nuts. So nuts are out. And uh, it took four months for me to have a solid bowel movement. So and when I tell you it really took me a long time for my digestion to get back online, it probably took six months. Mm. And so I'm now carnivore-ish. I eat a lot of meat, um, a lot more meat than I, I, I ate a good amount before. But now I have a high protein, uh, healthy fats, I would say a small amount of healthy fats, because my body still is trying to figure out how to digest all these things. And what's interesting, and I've done carb cycling for years, I cycle my carbs. So I do hover in the low carb range under 50, around 50, under 50 grams of carbs a day, which means I'm not doing keto. Um, and then on days when I lift heavy, I do more carbs. Now I can tell you my, my happy place is probably 50 grams of carbs a day. I don't count my carbs. I've just gotten to a point now I'm very savvy. I, I know I can eyeball things. I might go to 75 at most hundred, but I generally am the low carb-ish range. And I find that if I recycle my carbs, it does not impact my thyroid and adrenals in a negative way. And for those that are listening, there is some data, although you know I, I can't find huge consensus. There are some thyroid experts who feel that low carb is not not beneficial. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with are, are you in a position where you're trying to lose a lot of weight? That's when can, you know being in, in keto or doing a keto diet can be beneficial. I don't like to use ketogenic diets long term with my female clients. I like to cycle the carbs. I find that mitigates some of the concerns with the endocrine system. Uh, I, I do get a lot of questions about, you know, if I'm carnivore-ish, am I missing out on nutrients? And I just remind people that our body is pretty savvy. I do tolerate things like asparagus, um, which I love. And peppers, I'm on a pepper kick right now. <laughs> a lot of peppers. Um, in fact, I had ground bison stuffed peppers tonight, which I love. That has become a favorite of mine. But it's really listening to our bodies. Now, if I was remaining rigid about my diet dogma, I would still be having diarrhea. So from mm -hmm. my perspective, I had to listen to my body and it was telling me clearly that what I used to eat was not working. And, and it was very hard. I, I definitely felt like this past summer, I was really struggling because for me, it was nice occasionally to have a gluten-free cracker that was made from almond meal because it was a low-carb mm -hmm. cracker, but the almonds would just destroy my gut. And so I've, I've slowly been able to kind of reintegrate some vegetables. I do do berries on occasion. I will occasionally on a higher carb day do a just green banana. But beyond that, I'm pretty low carb and I'm, I'm happy in that space. But I would encourage anyone that's listening to not be rigid about diet dogma because if I had been, I would still be struggling. You know, someone said it's like riding the struggle bus, which kind of made me laugh. But the point being that we have to evolve, shift, and change throughout our lifetime. And, and right now, this is what works for my body. Mm. And I sleep well. I have plenty of energy. And, and those are the things that I use. And I, and I continue to intermittent fast. I wasn't able to do so when I first got out of the hospital because I was so thin. I had lost 15 pounds. And I'm not someone that had a lot of reserve to start with. Mm. So 
um, it took a bit of time to put enough weight back on where I could start intermittent fasting again. And so I continue doing that and I do that every day and enjoy it. I just now being home and social isolate, social distancing, I always say it's part of my, I'm not going to gain the COVID-19. So <laughs> one of the ways I do that is I have gotten really, I, I've shifted my fasting and feeding windows and now instead of, and also working out in the morning and then I take a long walk in the afternoon. And so I feel like that's keeping me pretty balanced because we're usually a family that's on the go all the time. So it's been a whole new normal. I have all boys and, uh, you know, they're used to playing sports and being super active. And so they're not as active because they can't be in the pool, but uh, we're keeping them as busy. They're running and biking and, you know, doing it on the treadmill at home and kettlebells and all sorts of things to stay active. So, so again, so, so much in that, Cynthia, that, that I, I just want to <laughs> dig into every one of those things that, that you just said. But, um, there's a few in particular. There was something that you said there, and that was, you know, be careful about um, following the diet dogmas. And, and I sort of call it, you know, don't become a zealot. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is that um, we get a lot of people who come to us and they've been following, for example, what they believe to be carnivore. Um, Mm -hmm. or they've been strict keto, or they've been doing intermittent fasting and extending it through to OMAD, to one meal Mm -hmm. a day, or even one meal every other day. And Mm -hmm. they become scared. So they become Mm -hmm. scared of carbohydrates, or Mm -hmm. um, they're scared to introduce anything else. Maybe they've had an oxalate sensitivity, Mm -hmm. and they're scared to experiment. Um, So they become stuck in this, this particular place mm-hmm. that maybe isn't serving them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it may not be exacerbating a health condition, but they're seeing other things happening. So they've, they've been on keto for a long time and it's been great mm-hmm. and it led to them having lots more energy and their mm-hmm. brain fog disappeared, and, and in particular if they're a woman. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're starting to get hot flashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happening maybe because they're not getting enough estrogen boosting foods and as you said mm-hmm. the endocrine system or the hpa axis is starting to bound. Mm-hmm. i think what happens is people just get into this point of believing there is only one way for them to eat mm-hmm. there's only one thing that they can do whereas the reality is that you know what we what i believe certainly what we believe is that if you go back in history um we didn't have the luxury of one way of eating because mm-hmm. we ate whatever we could get our hands on um, and that's varied throughout the years, whether man had fire, no fire, had animals, had plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, all, you know, so, so I don't think we'll ever know what, what the mm-hmm. truth is. But for mm-hmm. sure, what you've got to do is, is experiment. So um, mm-hmm. it's around understanding what's been working, what hasn't worked, and then allowing yourself the space to experiment and find what works. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's unusual for a single food, unless you've got a real allergy, it's unusual for a single food to cause you a major issue. So you can afford a few weeks of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that same sort of trend that people are just getting really, you know, entrenched and, <laughs> and, and you know, they don't want to move from where they are? They don't have the, they don't have the confidence oh. to, as you said, listen to your body. Right. And they have a document that says I must do this, this and this, and they follow that to the process. Mm. But they can't take that process and modify it, listen to their body and mm-hmm. modify it for themselves as you've sort of talked to. Is that, is that happening in your world too? I do. And, and I think especially with women in particular, especially if they're starting the slippery slope of perimenopause and menopause mm-hmm. and they feel so out of control and all of a sudden someone's saying to them, I don't want you drinking alcohol and I don't want you doing gluten, grains and dairy and I'm not saying this is going to be forever, but uh, we need to do some experimentation because what you're doing is not working. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be frightening. You know, when they're feeling like their body's out of control, it's not doing what it normally does. And so what I find is women start getting really restrictive with their food intake. They overexercise. They don't get enough sleep. They're so wound up and, you know, uptight about it that they don't allow themselves to kind of process. And I remind people, I'm like, you know, I was that super, super fit person mm. that hit a wall when they went into perimenopause and no one had ever spoken to me about what that process was like. And I put on weight and I had terrible sleep and, you know, it was like, no matter what I did, nothing was working. And I had, I was over-exercising, too low carb, um, too much stress. And so I just remind people that we have to be a little bit more gentle 
with ourselves. And, and yes, it's not convenient to have to pull things out of our diet. And it can take a couple weeks to really wrap your head around. If you have to re-engineer every meal and mm. every potential fun mm. food in your house, that can, you know, that can really be upsetting. But I, I, I remind people to reflect on the potential of what could be. You know, maybe this is, maybe it's dairy that is driving all of these problems. And we don't know if we don't pull it out of your diet. I, I like to share with people that for me, I mean, I was raised Italian and, you know, there was a lot of cheese in my world, a lot of milk. And, you know, I, I didn't really eat, a, I didn't think I ate a lot of dairy, but when I pulled dairy out of my diet, that was the missing link. That was the one you know, broad category of food that was the missing link for why I had been feeling so terrible. And yet I pulled everything else out and I was holding on to that, you know, for dear life. And now I don't even miss it at all. It makes me laugh. But the point being that it is very hard when we've been, we've been eating a particular way for a long period of time, but we have to think what's the greater good. Do you want, do you want to sleep better? Do you want to figure out what's going on with your gut? Do you want to lose five pounds? Do you want to have the freedom of feeling good? And I think we've just, we've been, again, so conditioned to be disconnected from our bodies. We don't slow down and eat. We look at food as a, food is, you know, food is not something to be savored. It's meant to just, it's like a checkbox in our minds. Like, oh, I have to eat because it's breakfast time. I'm going to eat even if I'm not hungry. And I'm going to eat, you know, a snack midway through, you know, morning and, and noontime, and then I'm gonna have a snack in the afternoon, and then I'm gonna have dinner, and then I'm gonna eat junk food at night, and I'm gonna have too much wine. And so it becomes this pattern where we're, there's, there's very little feasting and fasting. There's mm -hmm. just a lot of feasting all day long. And so that drives up all these other uh, mechanisms to you know, kind of circumvent the way that our bodies are designed to work. So yes, I, I do agree that people really struggle in this area. I'm very, very sensitive to that. I, I try to keep reframing you know, every time they give me an excuse, I try to reframe it and to be very supportive and remind them, listen, I'm not perfect. Uh, in fact, someone asked me the other day, do you have like a binge food? And I was like, well, I don't really binge, but my, I mean, I talk about this a lot. I love dark chocolate, like super high quality dark chocolate. That is like my thing. I'm a total dark chocolate snob. And I'm with you. Too. With you. My husband reminds me, he was like, our kids have like crazy expensive dark chocolate bars in this house. And I said, but when you buy really good quality dark chocolate, you don't need a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and yes, the, the bars are expensive, but it also reinforces why I don't finish one. I, you know, I have like, you know, a portion and I put it away and I now have a kid who takes out this massive jar of almond butter and just sits with almond butter and dark chocolate and eats it. And I, you know, I look at him, I have to remind him, I said, you're not swimming like you normally are. So don't go overboard with that. But yeah, I, I think that it's human nature. It, it, it stinks when you have to make those decisions. But I do encourage people to not remain rigid because maybe you do keto for a while and then that morphs into carnivore to try it out. And then maybe, you know, I'm not a big plant-based person and I respect people who make those choices, but I do believe we are, we are fully designed to consume meat. Mm -hmm. um, and then people will ebb and flow. And, and I never would have imagined that I would have gone from, you know, primal to paleo to carnivore to carnivore ish mm -hmm. to where the space that I exist now, except that this is where my body is happy. And, and I acknowledge that. And, and I always remind people that it's not normal to have bloating. It's not normal to be constipated. It's not normal to have diarrhea every day. And if you're having those things, you need to figure out why that's really yeah. critical. I think so true. And I, and we see a lot of women, especially, I think men have it easy to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, but you know, men do because it, you know they, they can do something for a long period of time and their bodies are generally, you know, and, and there are exceptions, but they're generally pretty stable. They don't have cycles, mm -hmm. they don't have hormones that go up and down. Hormones mm -hmm. can drop off, obviously, and things can change. But I think we you know we see a lot of women who are in the executive space leaders who have done you know some amazing things in their career um, and they've had structure and they've used that structure to become incredibly successful mm -hmm. and then perhaps over a period of time their health and wellness has declined mm -hmm. um, but perhaps they haven't really noticed it because it's been so gradual and then mm -hmm. to and then you know they do go through that experience of perhaps hitting peri or you know pre-menopause and um, mm -hmm. everything changes and they feel they're no longer in control mm 
Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, that idea that I can't have the same structure that I've always yeah. had. The, yeah, I can't use the same foods. I can't use the same exercise. The, the, mm -hmm. the long cardio sessions are not working for me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I have to do more stress, you know, management. I should do some slower activities, slow mm -hmm. down. A lot of our executive women really struggle with this because they are in that mm -hmm. high-powered position. They've had a lot of responsibility. Um, they have been, as I said, incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. And they feel like everything's been taken away from them and they're just out of control. And we're mm -hmm. seeing a, an increasing trend of women in that category. And it may be coming mm -hmm. out as binge eating or sugar addiction or mm -hmm. alcohol um, yeah, and, and even more so now, I think, with COVID, where, you know, the world mm -hmm. has changed around us as well. Um, so we're yeah. seeing a lot of people in that, in that group. Are you experiencing that as well, Cynthia? I am, and I do have quite a few um, executive level uh, clients. And so I'm particularly sensitive to this because, you know, for them, they've been, you know, conditioned to be go, 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 go all the time. And, and the accessibility, you know, they, they are so accessible, you know, they're on email, you know, they put their kids to bed and they're having a glass of wine to unwind and they're on email and, you know, maybe they're getting four or five hours a night of sleep and then they're getting up early to go with their personal trainer. And then, you know, it's go, 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 go and lots of travel and it's just exhausting. Hmm. And so, you know, they're, they're told and they're taught that, despite all of this pressure, they're supposed to, you know, there's to be X size, they're supposed to have a flat stomach, they're supposed to, um, you know, eat these, you know, minuscule meals, they're supposed to do hours and hours of cardio, they're supposed to lift weights, they're supposed to do, it, it's like the supposed to's mm. um, just continue to pile up on them. Yeah. And, and they don't, they have trouble relaxing. Mm. They have trouble disengaging from their jobs. And I think that's hugely detrimental because so many women, when they're, you know, in perimenopause and beyond, they're in the sandwich generation. They've got children that they're raising and their parents are getting older and, you know, there, there's not a lot of time and they feel guilt uh, about saying, I need to take a yoga class or I need to go meditate or mm -hmm. I need to go take a walk or I just need space. Uh, so a lot of it's the social conditioning that they find themselves in and, you know, it's also, you know, that, that time, you know, once we hit perimenopause, uh, and that's the five to seven years preceding menopause, um, that endocrine system that we didn't really think much about, again, it goes back to, I didn't really think much about my endocrine system until it started going haywire. Mm -hmm. I don't think most of us think about the endocrine system until mm -hmm. we stop sleeping, or we feel like we're panicky, or we're on edge, mm -hmm. or we start putting weight on or our thyroid, we're told our thyroid's underactive, mm. or we start having crazy heavy periods. I always call it the crime scene period. Women will say to me, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> I'm being told I need to be on hormones. I need to have an ablation. Someone wants to yank my uterus out. Uh, and so I, I think that it's just a sign like we feel like everything's out of control and we can't control anything. And so it, it really shifts women into feeling badly about themselves and, and feeling that they've lost, I used to call it losing your inner goddess. They've kind of lost the woman that they once were. Mm. Or sometimes they'll say, I'm no fun to be around anymore because I'm so like just on edge all the time. So we have to kind of slowly like an onion, peel back each layer and address those things and provide reassurance that, you know, we just, we need to change some things up, you know, stop doing chronic cardio. Let's get you lifting some weights. Let's ensure that two days out of the week, you're going to a yoga class or you're you know, I, I really like, there's a, a product called Muse. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it literally put it on your head and it had mm -hmm. an app on your phone and it, and it reminds you if you are in the right headspace, literally to be meditating. And for people who struggle with meditation, because they're like, I can't sit and just not think for an hour or 30 minutes or 15 minutes or five minutes. It's a great uh, concept, you know, that, or there's all these great apps that people can put on their phones but really getting yourself out of that fight or flight, you know, we're so sympathetic dominant that we don't even recognize like our body where our bodies are designed to, you know, if we're being chased by a saber toothed tiger, it's designed to, you know, shuttle blood to, so we can run away and make sure we don't stop to go to the bathroom or have sex or eat. You know, we're really just focused on getting away from the danger, but 
our bodies are so overwhelmed 24 seven that we're chronically in fight or flight. And because we're chronically in fight or flight, our cortisol's up and it shouldn't be up all the time. It's part of an emergency backup system. And so that impacts, you know, so many things. It's like the domino effect. It impacts immunity. It impacts insulin resistance, impacts so many issues. Uh, so I, I really do feel that it puts us at a disadvantage to be in this fight or flight over sense of overwhelm all the time. And very, very hard for people if they've been living that lifestyle for 20 plus years to gear back. Um, but I, I'm here to say that you can, you can make those changes. Uh, it takes a bit of time, but again, it's like peeling the onion. I love that analogy because that's really what it's all about. And, and that goes for even myself. I mean, being home, social distancing, when I'm used to being a little more on the go, used to getting on, you know, planes and traveling, um, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm at home and I'm got a lot of family time, which I love my kids, love my family, but creating a new norm so that, you know, there's rituals that we can create so that we feel like we have some control over a lot of other things that we can't control has really been beneficial. You know, now we're a month into this new normal. And so everyone's kind of finding their way, at least in my house. And I think, you know, many other people, I think the first week was probably fun and then it wasn't so fun. <laughs> so we have to keep reframing. Um, and I'll give you an example. Every afternoon I walk my dogs, either if not both of them, one of them. And so one day, you know, I, I, I do my work and my kids know usually between three and five, I get out with the dogs. And so I was ready to go out and it starts to rain. Now I get outside of my house and I'm, I'm like tearful because I'm, I'm realizing that something I have started as a ritual that is doing me and the dogs a lot of benefit is not going to happen. And so I walk them around my block. Of course, they're wet. I'm wet get back in the house. And my husband looks at me and I was like, I cannot talk right now. I need to just clear my head. I know this is a first world problem, but I need to just have a moment. And so my kids were concerned and I said, no, no, I'm just disappointed, but I'll be, I'll, I will work myself through this. Tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow it's not supposed to rain. I will work through this, but it's just recognizing that we have to reframe our lives right now, even though it is hard. Um, I don't think there's anyone that's I don't think I know anyone that's thinking this is perfect. It's just we're, we're acquiescing to this new normal and uh, that looks different every day or it looks the same every day. The joke is it's Groundhog Day again. So sometimes <laughs> I have to remind myself, what day of the week is it? Okay, today is Wednesday. Wednesday we do this, um, reminding my children that we have to create rituals in this new normal so that we feel like we have some control. I think that's really critical. Yeah, I think <clears throat> such, such good advice. And I think that, you know, there's... A lot of people still adjusting, trying to live the old life um, when the world around has changed. And I think the acceptance that the world has changed to feel incredibly thankful and, and blessed mm -hmm. that we have the opportunity to do something about this in a way that previous yes. generations didn't. And that right. we have amazing technology mm -hmm. um, that we can harness. And if we, if we do it well, we can actually create some amazing new rituals mm -hmm. and routines that will serve us in the future. So, you know, the fact that we don't have to travel, even though some mm -hmm. of us enjoy traveling, um, mm -hmm. we don't have to travel. We can mm -hmm. use the technology. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that children are getting a very unique educational experience mm -hmm. in some parts of the world that they would never have been exposed to. The fact that new technologies and new products are being developed and that we as individuals can actually take time because if we are indoors or at home for long periods, then we can create a space in the day where we take time for ourselves mm -hmm. and really focus on ourselves. I think there's, if we approach it with that mindset, not ignoring the fact that we have a crisis happening around us, we can mm -hmm. still bring some amazing good things into our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think allowing ourselves, allowing ourselves to focus on the things we can control because there's so much at the moment we are outside our control. And as you've said, the routines, the rituals, we're huge fans of an AM routine and a PM routine and structured sleep and all those things I think are really important. It now allows people to really focus back on what are their routines, what are their rituals mm -hmm. without the distraction of leaving the house and going to work mm -hmm. and travelling and really pairing it back to those primal rituals that we all should have that successful people thrive on and redeveloping those, those core rituals to make sure you support your life, which is great.
Well, and thinking about how many of us were living on autopilot, I, mm -hmm. I think that that was so much a part of our lives. Like my kids are, you know, I have a sixth grader and an eighth grader, so they're both middle schoolers and feeling, you know, feeling like things were moving so quickly, like so quickly that I couldn't do simple things, catching up around the house, like organizing a drawer or, you know, getting my children's like clothes that they had outgrown, mm -hmm. organized to make donations. And now, heck, we've got a lot of time. I think that in many ways, uh, I think so many of us are going to see this as a blessing, mm -hmm. whether or not we perceive it to be at this point in time. I, I truly believe that we are going to look at this as a blessing, um, mm -hmm. you know, when all is said and done, like what, what good has come out of this? And I always think back to my, my grandmother, who was part of the World War II generation, and, you know, she was a nurse and my, you know, my grandfather, you know, served in the military. And she would always say, you know, your generation is so fortunate that you haven't, this is pre 9-11, you haven't really had something, you know, significant happen to impact your personal liberties or how you live your lives. And so my, some of my favorite people to take care of when I was working in, in healthcare were the World War II generation because they were just so down to earth and just so grounded mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not so much post 9-11 because my children obviously weren't alive at the time. But when I think about now, I wonder if we are going to have a group of young people that are going to grow up with a different appreciation for their lives because they'll be the before and the after. Mm -hmm. And that's my hope, you know, out of what is turning out to be, you know, this global pandemic situation, I'm really hoping that people will come out of it with a differing perspective and mm -hmm. more gratefulness and more appreciation of the little things because Right now, when I think about it, like what I, what I am grateful for every day is something as simple as being able to take a walk with a dog or connecting with my 12 year old. Cause now he's got a renewed interest in Legos. I'm like thrilled about that. Or, you know, he wanted to, me to order him puzzles the other day. And I was like, when's the last time we sat down in puzzle? We've been doing board games and movie marathons and, you know, making meals together. And, and those are things that are so impactful because I was feeling like as a parent, we were getting so disconnected because they're getting more interested in their friends. Well, now they can't see their friends. They can just talk to them. You know, they can't leave the house to go hang out with their friends. So a whole newfound appreciation for very simple, very simple things. I think, and that's probably the, the perfect point to, to say thank you, um, Cynthia, because you've shared some amazing mm. insights. Um, and, you know, as always on these episodes, we go off into, into lots of different places. Mm -hmm. So hopefully people that are tuning in um, will have taken some amazing tips from this. Um, I think especially right now, as we all battle with this, with this crisis, keeping in the, the right mindset for us all as individuals and being grateful mm -hmm. for the smallest things in our lives, um, mm -hmm. whatever they are, our family, our friends, the technology, our health, whatever we've got. Um, it's time to be grateful for it. And we're very grateful that you had the time um, to join us and share all that. So thank you so much, Cynthia. No, thank you. It's such a pleasure to meet you both and have the opportunity to meet your audience. Hey guys, thanks for joining us on the Peaks Audio Experience. Make sure you've subscribed and please share the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to tell all your friends it's awesome, it's amazing and inspiring. And send us your hot topics to cover on a future episode. For now, have a great Peaks day. <laughs>